Welcome to the Gay 15 interview for April. I'm excited to have another really great guest this month and to pivot to a topic very near and dear to my heart, both professionally as it relates to security and personally, as I'm joined by Matt Mitchell to talk about a few things, including the topic of privacy. Matt, you have a fantastic background and are doing some really, really cool things. Before we dive into some of that, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself to those that are listening? Yeah, my name's uh, Matt Mitchell. Um, I'm the founder of uh, Crypto Harlem, which is an organization that, you know, just teaches cryptography, cybersecurity, surveillance, counter surveillance to folks who are over-policed and marginalized all around the U.S., uh, but mostly in the inner city and mostly black and brown folks. And I also work at Ford Foundation, institutional philanthropy that fights inequality around this world. And um, that's my, my day job. But in similar, like I work to support our grantee partners, amazing nonprofits and you know NGOs around the world by helping them raise their cybersecurity capacity and understand cybersecurity better. So I, just, I love that introduction. This is a great place to start, right? I was just uh, talking with a colleague about a program that he's supporting is helping encouraging more minority participation in cybersecurity because it's it's really a it's a big miss right now, right? So I love the fact there's champions like you that are passionate about this, have real experience in this area, and are doing everything you can to help grow you know, the minority representation in this community and just the knowledge. I think you're, you're helping just raise the baseline knowledge of why privacy matters and things that people can do to protect themselves, you know, as, as they go about their daily business and in different events they might participate in. So I I love that. And so why don't, we, why don't we start with the Ford Foundation and the work you're doing with your, with your daytime activities. And we'll get into some of the, you know, your takes on some of this stuff, some of the volunteerism actually that you're involved with. So you, you, met, you said that most recently been working with the Ford Foundation, which I think is cool because of the sort of indirect relationship to the Ford family and therefore indirectly the Detroit Lions, who's my football team of choice. So <laughs> that, that, that got me excited in my nerdy little way. But can you talk a little about the organization you already touched on a little bit and what you're doing there? Yeah, Ford Foundation was started by Edsel Ford, who was uh, Henry Ford, who made the car. It was, you know, invented the car, his dad. And at the time, you know, barons, you know, captains of industry, uh, people who were oligarchs or, you know, whoever you, whatever you want to call them uh, in the U.S., tend to start these uh, philanthropies to leave a legacy and also shape the world in their vision. Since then, you know, there was like a famous falling out with the Ford family, the Ford Foundation, because like, yeah. when you hire people to do good work, they're going to do that good work. And <laughs> it, it maybe you might feel there's too many women on the, you know, on the board or whatever it is or uh, but it continued on um, in with name only the Ford name is on it. Yep. And today it's an institutional philanthropy uh, that has 14 billion dollars um, in an endowment that's managed and the money is bought, sold, trade, invested to like maintain and grow. Uh, we support this one mission, which is a fight against inequality through convening, bringing people together, you know, understanding the global space, look, you know, looking at different trends and mostly uh, through financial support of $500 million a year, if not more, I believe like last year, maybe closer to a billion dollars of support. but. Um, philanthropies, you know, grant makers in the United States legally have to give something like 5% of, you know, you're supposed to be giving and that's what you have, you know. So because it's a large number, we give a lot, but we give over that amount and we're very much focused on making this world a better place. As cheesy as that might sound, that's really what I get to do every day. That's awesome. Man. It's, it's so good to be involved in something, one that you can really feel good about. 
and try and contribute and give back to the community, to your, your you know, whether it's your, your city or your country or, or, or people, however, however you do it. I think it's an awesome mission. You know, a lot of the work we do at Gate 15 um, is, is really for that purpose, right? We want to do everything we can to contribute to the community that we're in, help people be more secure so that they don't have to think about that stuff while they go about, you know, shopping and the movies and hanging out and doing all the things they want to do. I think it's folks that, you know, we want to help them maintain that security. And that's our way of sort of giving back. We have through a number of different ways. And you're also doing that at a whole different level. And I'm really excited about it and really appreciate your taking time to talk with us today. So thank you for serving and working at the Ford Foundation. And, you know, the work you're doing there and the work you're doing on your own from the volunteer activity, you've, you've got a real, you know, big focus on the population and privacy and protecting privacy. And I'd really love to dig into that today. Um, I want to start with a quote. I love this quote that you shared with Vice back in 2017. And I'll include the link for that in the show notes, but I'm just going to read the quote off. I think it's so good. It says, one, uh, something people need to be aware of, right? One, the companies want to surveil people. And two, the organizations, the companies don't have people's best interests at heart, right? And I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty powerful statement to make that, right? In recent years, we've heard more discussion on privacy as consumers, but a citizen's privacy goes back and you know, all the way back for a bill of rights, right? And a number of the amendments are passed in that bill of rights. So you know, if I could ask you personally, do you see privacy as a right? And if so, what does that mean to you? Yeah, privacy is definitely a, a right. It's a human right. And it's something that starts a long time ago, right? If we think about early civilizations and you think about what it took to survive, it made more sense to be alone. It made more sense to just hunt on your own. But for some reason, we decided to have community, to break bread, to share, to have like a, you know, literally tribes and also like tribes of thought. And humans are social animals and we just do better together. But for some reason, we do still feel the need to bury our bones in the yard, to have that little bit of privacy. <laughs> you know, I always, I often tell people, you know, if I was to offer you like a $5 million, you know, Manhattan, a high rise apartment and beautiful and this whole mansion on a hill type thing. And when you, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna move and go right there. But when you get there, it's entirely made out of glass. And people can see your every move and what you're doing it has, has all the amenities you could ever dream of, but they're completely transparent. There's zero privacy. You would move out. Something just doesn't feel right. That's why right. when we get a new space, whether we buy it or rent it, we buy shades. You know, you come out of the shower with your towel on, you still want a shower curtain, even if you live alone. There's a feeling that's like there's a line and it changes generationally. You know, the young folks today like to share more than maybe some other people do, but there's a line that you don't cross. And that is, this privacy feeling. And it's something that's innately human and it's part of our humanity, it's part of our dignity. And when it's taken from you, then all is lost because you lose a lot of your humanity. And I think when it's taken, a lot of negative things happen. And I would argue that part of safety is understanding that we are the same and we're flip sides of the same coin. And having a thing and keeping it safe and keeping it trusted and like having that community is partly like about an environment where there's no reason to take from you, right? So when we were all around that fire, breaking bread and sharing whatever we had, we all collected our fruits and whatever we nuts and whatever we gathered and to build that fire larger, we all got our twigs together and we survived together. And when there's a sense that there's a group that's pushing me down, marginalizing me, oppressing me, that's where the feeling of like, I'm hungry, I'm cold, we have to take what they have. 
And that's where the slingshots come out. That's where the rocks come out, right? And um, I think in cybersecurity, when we think about red team, blue team, purple team, we also have to remember like, why do people want this stuff? What is it that they're trying to get? Is it fame? Is it, you know, like we talk about like the idea of the hacktivist, we talk about the idea of, uh, you know, just going for glory hacker. We talk about the financials. But what I see in my travels around the world is, you know, a lot of places in the world, you know, you make $5,000 US a year going on, to an internet cafe or using your little nerdy skills to become a cyber criminal, that's the only opportunity you have. That is like your evil twin, you know, devoid of the path that you had and the access and availability to tools and resources, this idea became the only thing uh, or a very tempting thing. And it's high risk, high reward, right? It's feast or famine for them as well. So it's important to remember that. And that kind of leads me to my understanding of the privacy and security and cybersecurity. I really like to use a lot of really great imagery there. I mean, at the end, you're, you're talking about sort of some of the, the temptation that cybercrime has to those that are overseas. And you're right, you can make, you know, what, what might not be a huge, uh, you know, crime domestically, financially, I can go a long way if, if I'm sitting in Nigeria running BEC scams, right? And uh, exactly. I have a colleague who's, who's done a really uh, great job trying to, trying to get a program off the ground to, to change that story, right? To, to, to incentivize folks to become you know, cyber warriors and do good versus versus on the cyber crime side because it is hard and it is a it's a compelling argument that you know you can you can take this high risk option but maybe make a lot back and you see that all the time it's it's, it's uh, I don't want to say it's understandable I don't want to say hey, it makes sense to be a crime but but it can be it's logical on a cold yeah. math level right like you got yeah. mouths to feed and you have this skill but you also could be you know fishing all day and get nothing right so you know right. when you work a legit job you get a paycheck you have a boring day you got a busy day you get that paycheck so it really makes sense and it's a really way to deter that crime, right? Um, and you know, when there's a wind, cold season and they can't harvest, yeah, going legit actually makes a lot of sense. And back to the idea of the corporation, when you have a root on a machine, you know what I'm saying? Like, and it's your machine, it's like, okay, it's my machine, I put the stuff here. But if you root on someone else's machine, you have absolute power and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? So. You know, you start wondering, like, is everyone doing the same job? Is that, so are some people working harder? Do they deserve a raise or promotion? How do I detect that? And soon those same tools, you're like, wait, who's not, who's skating by? Who's not working hard? Who's lazy? Who's maybe selling secrets? I, you know, I could ask and wonder, or I could find out. I don't need to trust my employees and that, you know, question them. I could just dig. And that's where things start going sideways. And that's where, we end up where we are with like corporations and that statement that I've made, you know, because, you know, when I started as a kid, I was uh, trying to go like 100% legit with my hacking skills. But back then there weren't a lot of opportunities. And I got a job working for a huge corporation. I didn't really understand what the work was. They told us that, you know, we were doing like rollouts and, you know, setting up desktops or whatever, whatever. It was a long time ago. I think like Windows new technology just came out or something. Yeah. <laughs> but like a month or two later, they were like, actually, your job is this. We need you to look at everyone, what they're doing. It's kind of like a sim, but like back then, you know, they, that didn't exist. And it's like, these are behavioral metrics, electronic metrics on the network, on the people, and especially people with foreign passports, but all the staff, we want you to flag when they went left instead of right. And um, what we quickly figured out on my team is like this was leading to like suspensions and terminations of folks, right? 
And of course we have the, we have these things and the business exists and we should protect the business, but it's easy for us to go too far. And that's what you see with like privilege access. If you're a staff at a tech company and you work at, you know, big Google or Twitter or whatever, um, and you can see everything, you do your job the first couple of months, but then slowly, for whatever reason, you start looking at your friends or looking at your people you're romantically interested in. Next thing you know, you're going too far. You're breaking the rules. You're bending yeah. the rules. It's because you have the eye of Sauron, you know, and you have that one ring and it makes you act differently. And so that's why I love like a zero trust environment. That's why I love environments where it's like, you know what, we're going to keep everyone safe from everyone, including ourselves, because that's a little more fair. And when you have that built in, it's a little bit different, but business isn't normally interested in that. No, you know, I, I love so much of what you touched on there. I've been, I've been talking recently on the idea that, you know, it is a really fine line between protecting and securing and going too far, right? When you're in that job of, of protecting or defending, your focus isn't necessarily on the well-being of others and their privacy and their, because your, your concern is on protecting that whatever they used to protect, right? And that applies to you know, the network administrator and then those that are you know monitoring the organizational activity. It also applies to our friends at the FBI. It applies to military leaders, right? That's why we've been in Afghanistan for, for 20 years, right? Until the president recently said we're getting out because there's always a compelling reason to stay in that fight. There's always a compelling reason to push security. Our law enforcement personnel, maybe often right now, especially we'd be painting them as bad guys, but at the end of the day, their job is to keep people safe and secure when they don't cross that line, right? And so they're willing to exercise sometimes increased levels of of activity that might not be acceptable, but their mission is to keep people safe and secure, right? So they're, the lens through which they're looking, the lens through which the military is looking, the lens through which the FBI is looking, the lens through which that network defender might be looking might be very different than you know the, the person's looking through it from a, a privacy and well-being standpoint. And that kind of leads me to the next area I wanted to go because I think we're talking about here with privacy is really important, you know, from a safety standpoint, from a personal standpoint, and for our security, right? And I. I really appreciate and respect my colleagues at the FBI very much. And I work closely with them through my work with InfraGuard. And, and as I've told many of them, and on this podcast in November, when the FBI joined us to talk about election security, while I agree with a lot of what they want to do and the heart of what they want to do, I disagree with them and their statements on encryption and backdoors, right? And this comes up all the time, right? And, and so I'd like to ask, you know, what are your thoughts on, on privacy and security? We talk about things like, you know, giving away access to, encryption or things of that nature, you know, where do we draw that line, right? Besides the corporate level, we have to sort of make those decisions and you give somebody that ability and they sort of slowly encroach and cross that line. How do we manage that when it comes to security with our law enforcement partners and privacy? Where, where do you see that? Well, I see it as when you give all your power to see things and guard and protect to one person, it's kind of like this prison experiment, right? Where you know, we're just, we're both here as regular people in an experiment, but because I've given like unfettered power over you quickly, something starts changing in my psychology and I end up going too far, right? Yep. And the idea that to protect, you must lose some rights is the story of many places where we point fingers of, oh, surveillance is so horrible over there. Well, it didn't start yep. that way. It started with a bunch of people saying, we need to protect the status quo. We need to, things are being built a certain way. We need to make sure they get constructed to finality and that, you know, nothing gets rocked and things don't get shaken. And with a few choices that you make that are anti-privacy choices, 
and anti-humanity choices. You end up in a totalitarian dictatorship with like what we would say repressive levels of surveillance. Well, you know, repressive is relative and a couple of generations are born living there and it's just normal, right? Yeah. You know, you, it's kind of like boiling a frog slowly. So to the question of the FBI, I would say this, you know, like Harvard Law School, they had this don't panic paper, had a lot of really cool things written in there, you know, um, and um, in it, like, um, in it, they, they say, it was about like the going dark argument, right? Um, we're trying to keep things safe, but now more than ever, technology is changing and the quote unquote bad guys are going dark and we can't see them. And if we can't see them, we don't know if they're there or not there. We don't know how many of them there are. We don't know how many like monsters are under the bed. Is it zero or is it a million? And the only way we can know is if you give us all viewable access to all technology. And it's a, it's a hard position to be in, right? Because first of all, once we do create this back door, who's to say that that back door will always be only openable by this particular party, this particular group? That's right. That's right. Second thing is, especially in countries like the United States where you know the political winds blow every four years, right? And for, you know, no matter what your viewpoint on politics are, in four years, they could be flipped on their head. And in eight years, they can flip flipped further. And in 12 years, it goes completely different direction. So what was once the trusted group is now a dangerous group, but it's written in, it's, you know, that contract is set. Imagine you had an SLA with a vendor and they were like, yeah, yeah, we have this agreement, but every four years, the entire team, the CEO, everyone just leaves and we get a completely different team in. And we also change the way that we perceive and view this SLA. You would not sign that contract, right? But that's where we are. And that is where law enforcement is when it comes to these special powers. And I would say this, it's a, like, it's a, an impossible situation. If you can see a crowd of 100 people and you know that one of them is Jason Voorhees and Jason's on his way to Camp Crystal Lake, right? But you don't know which one it is. He's not wearing the hockey mask. Um, but if you can read everyone's mind, see what they did yesterday, almost perceive and detect what they will do tomorrow, we can stop Jason. Is it worth it? You know, is it worth it for that one camp counselor, right? <laughs> um, and a lot of folks would say, yes, all lives have to be perceived the same way. It's a sacred, you know, um, and I would say the loss to the entire civilization by making that choice is too high, right? It's too high. And we have to therefore live with certain realities, which are uncomfortable realities. And, you know, I used to work in private security. So I used to travel around the world, work with different NGOs and, you know, different investigative reporters and just amazing people around the world in completely different high risk environments. And reality is like, there is no such thing as a million percent safe, right? There is no such thing as that. And that's an uncomfortable reality for a lot of people, right? But law enforcement live that reality, they experience it every day. And it leads to the psychological idea of, I must look under this bed. I must see that thing, right? And I would say, if we can actually just get to a place where we're a little more balanced, the, how things are, we can start making more balanced decisions that make a lot more sense and are more human and are more real. And um, yeah, that's basically my thought on that, right? But, you know, backdoors, they don't work because the perception is like, look at the, like, 
interesting in the intelligence agencies of the United States because everyone has got a different viewpoint on cryptography and encryption and how we should use it, et cetera, right? And the NSA has always been like very pro-encryption, right? As opposed to their colleagues of the FBI. And the CIA is like different depending on, you know, like which entity are you looking at in, inside of the CIA. And think about the NSA. We also think about an agency that um, there are, there were black, cryptologists working in the NSA. And their story was completely lost and hidden until a box of photographs were found in like the 1990s. <laughs> and yeah. someone was like, who are these people in these pictures, right? And like, who's this guy? And it led to some research and they found, it was this guy, his name was like William Coffey. He was a janitor who worked his way up and like started recruiting African-Americans to become cryptologists and started a whole, they let him like work this whole ring. He was like a courier, then a janitor, it was an impossible story. Um, and there was a whole wing of the NSA of black folks breaking codes and it was lost, right? Um, because history changes and what's good changes and what's a good idea changes. and. Also with the NSA, when you look at the shadow brokers and losing yes. cyber weapons, right? A cyber bazooka just disappears. But now when you take it apart, everyone with slingshots now has cyber bazookas, right? That is the price of a backdoor. Once you make it, first of all, the trusted parties that hold it can change. And then second of all, a strong enough adversary can find it. And if they do get their hands on it, game over. And we would never let that happen with a nuclear football. We would never let that happen with, you know, anything like that. So I think we need to be really careful and cautious. But that also means living in a world of uncertainty. Yeah, man, there is so much in what you just shared that I that I absolutely love and I disagree with none of it. And I want, I'd love to dig into all of it. I just want to touch a couple of those points. I think you hit some really, really key things there, right? So you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if there's a back door for the good guys, just from what we've seen just in the last few months with the different compromise, we have to assume that if that backdoor exists, the bad guys are gonna to get to it too, right? And so that's a huge risk. It's just a huge risk. And, and you kind of talk about that idea of, as a people, we have to be able to accept some level of reasonable risk in our lives, right? If you look at that and you know, are we gonna give up all of our privacy rights to catch Jason or not, right? And can we live with that possibility? And you know, I, I try to keep politics and opinion you know, very much out of this show, but in reality, mm -hmm. we have to accept that those political pressures exist. So if there is a, a bad incident on whoever's watch that is, right, the other side, whoever that is, always makes it look like we should have done more and, and we could have stopped it. And so that argument sort of leads to this idea for our security leaders, whether it's again, law enforcement or the military or, or government officials of you know, zero incidents are allowed. And or CISO, right? Who's about that? to lose their job, of a company, right? Like, oh yeah, we got breached yesterday. Mm. You're out. What, what are you going to do to fix it? Or are you going to fall on the yeah. sword? And, and so they keep pushing, right? They keep pushing for more access, more authority, more super, more power. And, and it puts everybody in a difficult situation because we, we sort of then get into this idea that, well, yeah, this shouldn't have happened. And so we give away these rights uh, without really realizing the long-term consequences of that. So I really appreciate some of the imagery you use there in your examples. Yeah. And I think the real heroes are when something catastrophic happens, something unimaginable and horrific happens and then there are no changes. That's because quietly behind closed doors, there are heated arguments. Like you said, there was that political pressure, those accusations was close this case or find the, you know, and cooler heads prevailed, right? And, you know, we're, we're computer scientists, uh, we're forensicators, we're digital security people. It's, we're, 
we should be the mathematicians with the ones and zeros. If anyone can put all the emotion aside and do what's best for the future of civilization, it has to be us. And it often means in not, not getting the recognition and reward in not making a horrible choice, right? Yeah, I, lo I love that. I love that. And I, I'm with you in that we have to accept some level of reasonable risk in our lives. Bad things will happen because there's bad people in this world. And, and, and no matter how you know, overbearing we, we allow things to become, bad things will still happen. You know? So I, uh, that, that was great. Thank you for all that. You get some great, some great ideas there, some great points being made there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna highlight that one quote that I love so much, just back doors, they don't work. And I think that, that, that's what it boils yeah. down to. At the end of the day, yeah. it's just not, it's not gonna work. It's not feasible. It doesn't make sense. And breaking encryption doesn't make sense either because uh, more harm will come in from it than good. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot a little bit. I wanna respect your time as much as I'd love to dig into probably the five hour podcast, you know, but um, <laughs> I wanna bring you back to, to your work and outside of your paid work, you know, you've done a lot of volunteer work as well. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Crypto Harlem, what you're doing there and why that has been such a big passion of yours? Yeah, totally. Um, so Crypto Harlem kind of started like as a crypto party, right? You know, the idea, you know, Asher Wolf in Australia was saying, I want to learn more. I heard about these uh, Snowden leaks or something like what's going on with <laughs> privacy and how's the internet? And Typical, you know how it is, like the tech internet and the tech world. Oh, whatever, noob, get out of here, boo, right? And that's not helpful. Because uh, we all knew less yesterday than we know today. And that we were all, before we knew anything about this, didn't know anything about this. It's how it works. It's how learning works, right? But then we forget that day and we become horrible people. So uh, the idea was, hey, what if someone just sat down and said, I'm having this event. I'm not an expert. We all can learn together. That's this idea of a crypto party. And uh, so for Crypto Harlem, I wanted to raise up that whole idea. And I really liked what Asher was trying to do and you know, the different crypto parties now that exist around the world and the people who volunteer to do that. But it was this idea of four folks in the inner city having a place where they can learn about the surveillance that they live in, that they experience. Because you might take a subway in New York City, you might get take a plane or someplace, anywhere where you're around other types of folks. And you might not realize that some of those folks live in like a dystopian Terminator 2 future. And some of those folks live in like the present day where you live. And for a lot of folks in the inner city, there's many layers of surveillance that come from different things. And it might be from commercial surveillance, it might be corporate surveillance, it might be residential surveillance, it might be uh, law enforcement, it might be, right? But when all those layers come together, you live in a hyper-surveilled space. And technology tends to be something that happens to you, not for you or with you. Um, you know, African-Americans and Latinos over-index on mobile phone use, like Pew Research shows us this, right? But that's a consumer-only technology. You'll see folks who have like more than one phone, right? Or coldly glittered up, bedazzled phones. They know everything about, oh, you gotta hack it this way, do this thing. But you can't write code on that phone. You know, you're not developing a game on that phone. You're not solving the world's problems on that phone, right? So, and um, so I was like, listen, let me talk to these folks and explain this is what exists. This is why it's here. And this is what you can do about it, right? And also, this is what privacy means for folks who are marginalized. And when I say marginalized, I mean, there's a center and there's a centrifugal force that pushes you outside of the center. And we all are marginalized in our day-to-day -day life to some degree, right? Um, you might have that like really unpopular playlist, but you'd love to jam out to it in the shower. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, like, um, and all around the world, your identity is part of 
what causes you to be marginalized. And, you know, you might be of a certain ethnicity, you might be of a certain gender, you might have, you know, a different orientation or, you know, whatever, you know, you might have certain disabilities, et cetera. Um, and you're in different places, but there's always a group kind of on the edge, really pushed out. And my travels around the world, I'm like, oh, it's so interesting. You're that group here, you know, like, okay, you know, oh, you're ethnic, ethnic Russian in Estonia. I get it. You're blah, blah, blah. You know, there's always, oh, you're Albanian, but you're in Northern Macedonia. I got you, right? Like, there's always that group. And to that group, things are different because they're seen as like a suspicious other. Maybe they got to the party late, you know, or, you know, maybe whatever it is. And instead of asking that group, it's just a suspicion that never leaves. And because we live in a futuristic world, futuristic things are used to analyze and probe and monitor those groups. And that's what Crypto Harlem is about. It's about that truth and unraveling it and finding about like a place where we all can come together. And I love it because it's a very diverse space. And even though it's like, you know, it used to be on the corner of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Boulevard in Manhattan, it was like in Harlem, uh, a lot of black folks, a lot of uh, Latino folks. Um, but also, you know, it's gentrified. A couple of hipsters roll through, you know, people from downtown come in, some professors come from Columbia. It was always a, a, a great vibe and we learn together and we speak about things. And because of the pandemic, now it's a live stream, but uh, I love highlighting these things. I love speaking to folks, bringing people together through that shared love of technology and a shared appreciation for privacy. I think that's awesome. I think that's so great. And hopefully we'll be on the other end of only, only virtual events here soon enough, but you know, just just to do what you're doing, because right, I mean, in some way, all of us are on the outside, right? However small that might be, you know, for for our beliefs, for where we come from, for the way we look, from whoever we are, right? We're, there's always something about us. So some for some of us, that's more than others, but we can all relate to that. But for you to be able to take those experiences, you know, going outside the United States and traveling and seeing that, because that, that's where I learned so much. I had a chance to deploy three times as a soldier, and and those experiences really helped me just grow so much. Just understanding people and challenges and hatred and, you know, stereotypes and be able to bring that back into my world here. And so I really appreciate the fact you're taking that passion, that knowledge and insight and sharing it with those maybe having a chance to do that or maybe not as much and, and grow their perception, their understanding and, and work to protect themselves. They protect their communities and their identities. That's awesome. So thank you for volunteering and sharing and, and helping the community out. And yeah, when I get to New York next, we've got to get together and at least a cup of coffee or something. 100%. Yeah, totally. I would love that. <laughs> But, uh, but let, me, let me move on again, because there's a lot of things you're really excited about that get me really excited. So I want to talk about another one, which is you describe yourself as a bug bounty enthusiast. And I love that. And I support that enthusiasm. Can you explain first what we're talking about when we say bug bounties, just so everybody has a common understanding of what we mean by that? And then two, what do you like about that model? You know, for those listening, why should I bother the bug bounty program if it's in my, you know, my option to have one or not? Or why as a consumer should I care if the company whose product I'm using has a bug bounty program in place or not? Yeah, I mean, I think it, the very first hacker conference is uh, a New York conference called SummerCon. It's kind of like insiders, insider conference now. And I could be wrong, but I think it was Chris from Uber before he was out there, when he before the car hacks and all that other stuff. And he had given a, a speech that was um, no free bugs, right? So if I'm, more, if I'm wrong, like, excuse me, but uh, I, that's off the top of my head. And uh, in that, it's basically like this idea, like we're doing all of this security research, right? And um, we're helping all these businesses for no, like, there's no benefit. <clears throat> and you're the good person, you know what I'm saying? You're not like, oh, I found, I, I tripped over a zero day. Let me see how I could weaponize this. That's not yeah. you. You were just like, oh. <laughs> you're not that guy. <laughs> yeah, you know, oh, I was using this banking website as a cross site, you know, a scripting exploit, whatever, you know, like whatever it might be. Like, oh, my calculator just popped up. Hi.
do that, you know. A um, little bit of recognition for folks who will find those security bugs and share them, right? And then you're responsible way, responsible disclosure changes, right? But if you go by Microsoft definitions, you're like, yo. I'm gonna think, I'll give you this much time to fix it. Um, and if I do do this, all of this is done for no benefit. But now because of bug bounties, I receive a bounty. I receive a kudos, a high five, a t-shirt, you know, a, a coffee card, whatever it is. Now, now of course, there's the big bug. you can put something out there and then you'll be like hey you know what thank you thank you so much for that you, you didn't to do that that's what a bug bounty is on it all year to find one and that's their salary yeah sure right but um oh sorry hold on uh nope it is not okay hold on let me try to fix it it said an unstable internet let me fix it oh, sorry hopefully you can edit this out I can't hear. Oh, you're on mute. That's why. Sorry, as Matt and I are having this conversation, I've got some crazy winds going on behind me, and, and we're having a little bit of a, a technical glitch. So we're trying to make sure we have this uh, the smooth. I have a I have um a, a Google Fi hotspot I could switch to. So if it's is it bad now or is it normal? Oh, you're clear. You're crystal clear. Okay, Thank let you. me see what is on my system that's running because nothing needs to be running but this. So I'll also share back some notes on bug bounties in the notes for those that are listening, just to provide additional background and context, because they're really great programs that a lot of great organizations are running now. And mm -hmm. it's good to understand what those are if you're not already familiar with them. But um, we'll, we'll continue the conversation here. And I think a lot of folks probably already understand what bug bounties are and why they are so important. It's great to see their proliferation now with so many organizations. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, we got HackerOne, we got Bug Crowd, we got Yes, We Hack doing stuff, you know, internationally in France, we got, you know, I mean, Every company basically has something. Um, you can have a contact us page. You can have like a, um, a security text file, whatever you have. It's just putting it out there and just saying, listen, if you find something, let us know. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I'm a fan of that. Like I, um, like I do have an account on, on the different bug bounty systems and whatever, but I like to just reach out to people and be like, yo, I found this. You should fix this. I don't need anything for that. You know what I mean? Like, I have a day job. I'm cool. Uh, you know, I, I just enjoy poking around and knowing that I can still, I still got it first of all. And, and that, uh, you know what, like we, we all, we all are better off for that. And I'd say like, obviously if an organization has a bug bounty, they're like, look, these are where you, these are the parameters. Like you can test this, but don't do this or whatever. Like this, you know, you're not just going to like do everything and take out somebody's website or, break somebody's app or whatever but a lot of stuff to break them you have to identify it yeah you identify but a lot of it's just kicking tires it's just noticing things that it's our user facing right and that's what i love because that to me is like the real world ctf that to me is what keeps me sharp and makes me happy so yeah anyway that's the that's the bug bounty i tend to I, I, I i'm that. sorry if i could keep my answer shorter i apologize no no you did not you're talking to the wrong guy about that i talk way too much about everything so no but i, mean, I love it I think people, some people get uh you know frustrated by the idea of people coming to them 
and sharing they found a vulnerability. But to me, it's like if I if I leave my my car windows open, there's a thunderstorm rolling in, and somebody comes and knocks on my door and says, "Hey, man, you might want to put your windows up." I appreciate that, right? That's just good looking out, it's looking out for me, and didn't take that much effort. It's a, it's a similar type idea here, right? If, if if the windows are open on your organizational security, you know, let somebody tell you they're down and, and and take them in and put them back up if you can, right? That, that's that's good looking out. That's that's being a good neighbor. Well, you'll find out one way or the other, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's the reality of it. And I think like, I mean, we see things like Project Zero, which is Google's team of, um, you know, just kind of like hackers at Google looking at Google products, but also looking out into the world and helping out. And they've they've recently said that next year, they're going to change their how they handle responsible disclosure and shorten some times and things like that. So I think like, yeah, there's different moves. And I think it's in response to, um, what we see out there in the field is like some people not really appreciating what you're giving them, right? Which might be their entire reputation or their ability to do business. And I think you know it's so great. I mean, you're talking about you know organizations like Google that have teams doing this. But I think one one awesome thing about the security community is that so much volunteer activity takes place in the back, and people have no idea about, right? I mean, every day, you know, we've got colleagues that are identifying issues sharing information, trying to be put in contact with this organization or that organization, let them know. And, and they're not asking for anything, right? They're, they're just doing it because they see it. They, like you said, they want to keep their skills up and they enjoy doing it. And they want to make sure that these things are prepared so that when the bad guy has that same identification, they're not able to take advantage of it, right? want to cut that off. So I mean, there's, there's a lot of incredible work being done by so many, you know, crime fighters are doing this out of, out of the goodwill of their hearts. And I think that, that story isn't told well enough, often enough, so people really understand and appreciate that. But Matt, I mean, you've been awesome. I want to ask you one more deliberate question here. It's 2021. You already talked about, about, you know, where the administration is today, isn't where it was four years ago, where it's going to be four years from now, right? Politics come and change, like the the, the, the color of the leaves. There's lots to be excited about, though, here, you know, in April 2021. There's a lot to be agitated, agitated about. There's a lot to be fired up about, right? So whether you like this administration or that administration, whether you like this cause or that decision or take part in this issue, any words of wisdom for you, for the citizen and the activists that are out there as they get excited about certain issues, they get excited about their political beliefs, anything they can be thinking about, should be thinking about to keep safe and secure in that environment? Yeah, I mean, for like an average person, I would just say, you know, delete everything and encrypt, encrypt, encrypt. but for, I would say, like security brethren, those good folks out there, that community, you know, regardless of whatever you feel or whatever excites you or whatever your political viewpoint is or whatever you see, things that you feel like I can help, dive in. It doesn't have to be a deep dive. It doesn't have to be you. Like I've committed in my entire life to this line of work. You know, I used to have, I came like a total corporate background and I just switched. You don't have to do that. You could do this nights and weekends. You could do this every other Monday. You can do this and stop doing this, you know, but do something because we are the wizards. You know, we are from the future. We got the computer skills. It, you know, we got lucked out. The stamp collectors and the baseball card collectors, those other nerdy hobbies, the world doesn't run on what they love, right? <laughs> so yeah, just we owe it to this planet we're on to just leave it a little bit better with just helping a little bit with our magic. And um, there's so many amazing ways to do that from like fellowships and sabbaticals to, you know, volunteering, to like going to your annual B-sides in your community or forming one or whatever it is, you know. Um, it behooves you to do it. You must do it in whatever way you want to do it, whatever you think excites you. And that makes me happy when the tech folks, that's my people's, you know, like nerdy folks, uh, hacker people, security people, when you're doing anything outside of what you do for a dollar to just 
help out in whatever way you want in whatever spaces you you love yeah yeah i love that man i can't think of how many times i've been talking to somebody and the conversation goes the same way right they started out you're building a local area network with some friends they could play games together mm-hmm. that grew into something else grew another interest right and that, that's that 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 nerdy hobby like you described it sort of grew into this you know fantastic skill set that like you said the world runs on right now and uh so so to use that for good is, is a great way to go and so many people are using it for good but i love that encouragement you know for everybody to sort of thinking about what else can i do run a cyber camp you know help mentor somebody report that bug bounty you know issue whatever it is right do something to give back in whatever capacity whatever time you have and i think it's an awesome approach so you know thank you matt you, you shared a lot like i said we could dig into some of these things and probably have a, a long conversation we have a chance to do that in person together one day but you're a remarkable person you're a remarkable guest thank you for being on the show Please let me know anytime you want to be back on. I think there's probably a number of things we could talk about. So anytime you feel like you've got something you want to, you know, get off your chest, open floor, open invitation here at, at uh, the Gate 15 podcast. But as we wrap up, open floor for you. Anything you'd like to share, promote about you or the work you're doing or anything that you're doing out there that you'd just like to, to share with the listeners? Yeah, we just say watch Gate 15. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine. Runa was on uh, Gate 15, so I heard about it, I think. So, yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I listen to this. You know, I, I listen to a bunch of different things. I would just say stay sharp. The world runs on this, but the world could be destroyed by this too. So we're, we have a defensive, you know, it's like a Hippocratic oath. Like we owe it to maintain things a little bit here. And um, there's the cybersecurity assessment tool that I built for Ford Foundation. Check it out, you know, see if there's anything you like there. If anything doesn't look right, I'm happy to hear from it, you know, you about it. Um, if you need to find ways that you can help out in smaller, big ways, and you're not sure where to start, I'm like, just reach out to me. I might not get to you right away, but I promise I'll get back to you. And I'm on Twitter, I'm on email, all that stuff. And you can look at the show notes. I'm sure they'll be in there. That's right. And um, there's tons of fellowships uh, that Ford Foundation and other, other philanthropy support in technology. And um, I'll try to share some of those. Uh, so we can maybe give them Andy to the, to the folks, but, uh, that's, that's basically it. Thank you for listening to my voice and giving me your time. And that means the most to me. And, um, that's it. Thank you. Nah, thanks. Thanks so much. You really, this this was great. Yeah. Send over any links you want me to share. I'll share them. You look, if you look at, listen to this blog or listen to this podcast, you can go to our blog. We'll have Matt's contact information, his Twitter and other ways you can reach out to him. An incredible bio. If you want to take a look at that, just done some really amazing stuff. And I love how you present that by the way, but Matt, again, thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks for your great work. Thanks for your commitment to security and privacy and helping people around you and those that aren't immediately around you through all the good things that you're doing. And as always, thanks to everyone who is listening. This Gate 15 interview is my monthly interview with amazing guests and leaders such as Matt and past guests such as Runa, who we both enjoy and appreciate, and from uh, across our Homeland Security Risk Management community as we address a wide range of all hazards, topics, and issues. Please check out our other Gate 15 podcasts. We'll be on the same channels you're hearing this. That includes our monthly risk roundtable discussion. That includes Jen's cybersecurity evangelist discussion and Dave Pounder's nerd out discussion, which if you missed this last one, I thought it was a great conversation with our friend Rob Yandow on some really important security issues. So we hope you'll subscribe, listen, share your ideas and feedback. You can reach out and yell at me anytime that you want. You can find us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, or you can email us at podcast at gay15.global. So with that, Matt, once again, thank you. And until next time, be reasonably safe and live free.